Shane Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are talking to our friends from Common Knowledge, a um, workers co-op uh, that works on uh, technical infrastructure for social movements. It's a it's a fun little interview. I love this this sort of thing of like people doing the, the thing that like, I mean, I'm sure it's not like directly inspired by what we've been rabbiting on about, but like taking the same impulse of like, hey, we should really get fucking serious about organizing and the infrastructure of organizing and then going and doing it and then getting to hear back from them, which is really wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, it's, um, well, yeah, well, on to the interview. Um, well, it's great to have you here. Um, uh, we're here speaking with uh, Gemma and Alex from Common Knowledge. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, Gemma, who are you? What are you doing here? Why are these things happening? <laughs> Hi, I'm Gemma Copeland. I'm uh, one-fifth of Common Knowledge. I work at co-op. Um, I have a background in originally graphic design, um, but then kind of UI, UX, design um so i do that within the co-op along with a bunch of other stuff i guess pretty cool um and alex yeah so i'm alex ward andrews i'm also uh one fifth of common knowledge and i guess like professionally i'm a software engineer but i do a lot of the kind of project and uh kind of like Organ- internal some of the organ- internal organization stuff in common knowledge when we know we have to like, deliver software and that uh i have a background in continental philosophy and yeah i'm very excited to be here today yeah we're we're all very excited and the, the good kind of philosophy i might add um analytic philosophy has its place i will defend some aspects of it <laughs> it's, it's places below continental though anyway um yeah so what what's common knowledge all about what's what's the deal there um yeah so we are a worker cooperative, um, which means that every one of our members like owns and controls the collective. Um, we're a not-for-profit, which means that like um, any kind of surplus we make from doing consultancy work, we kind of redistribute either to the co-op or doing solidarity work for organizations. Um, and we design and build uh, digital technology for um yeah activist groups community organizers unions charities etc at the start we kind of were always saying like design and build digital tools for activists but we are kind of I guess expanding our definition of what activism is um but I guess what we're really interested in is this kind of like bottom-up organizing, so really about kind of like empowering people to make change in their own lives um, and less so about kind of electoral politics. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I, I guess, um, was there any particular like reason or like set of events that kind of led to the, the realization of, hey, we need, we need to go and do tech infrastructure for social movements? Um, yeah, so... Common Knowledge was kind of founded out of basically an analysis of the fact that 
in kind of political technology, uh, political technology in general, and political technology, I mean, like, you know, things like pieces of technology that allow people to build their collective power, their collective capacity, their ability to act, their ability to uh, influence events was, you know, largely produced in a kind of electoral context. So, you know, if you look at the, the current US electoral cycle, there will be a whole bunch of technology that has been built out the back of that. Some of it will be, you know, turned into what you call in software engineering commodity technology. Um, that means that technology that, like, you know, anyone can buy off the shelf and then use it for, you know, propagating their own campaigns. And the, one of the observations that led to the foundation of common knowledge is in terms of non-electoral technology, um, technology that was to do with organizing, um, you know, organizing people, whether that is in, you know, grassroots trade unions, whether that is in, I don't know, in uh, community organizing groups, whether that is in kind of like activist contexts, that was kind of lacking any kind of like technology. Um, you know, people made have made various attempts to do the, this kind of stuff, but that was kind of lacking. Um, and the set, and and also there was no kind of institution. There was kind of no institution to kind of bind together these efforts over time. So that was like one of the things that that led to the founding of common knowledge. But one of the the kind of the other things that led to it is that um, the reason why it's called common knowledge is that we felt that the kind of techniques of both organizing itself um so like you know the act of like how to organize collectives uh how to you know organize campaigns for for social change was kind of like a little bit difficult to get hold of those understandings and and the digital aspect of this so how to do this uh in terms of software and using software for this kind of thing like how to structure a campaign but you know organizing data for a campaign web tools for a campaign was was also very obscure so in a way what we're trying to do is do two things we're, we're trying on one hand to uh build the tools hopefully that are useful for organizers and on the second level show how we have built the tools and encourage others to uh do likewise so would it be, if I'm understanding correctly, like the, the existing sort of technical solutions would, would, would all be geared towards uh, an electoral sort of framework that would assume that like the tasks you're going to be doing are like gathering emails for a newsletter and like organizing like door knocking, basically. And that those, those would also like the, the institutional forms necessary to do organizing would also still be kind of like fairly obscured. Like even if you went and got that software, it's like you're, you're not going to know how to run a sort of... Um, run a grassroots campaign anyway um and that i i i, I maybe this this kind of gels with my experience that like when you when people end up putting together like mutual aid networks or any kind of grassroots campaigns they just end up using like slack or discord or something which is like totally unstructured so you, you have a choice between like this structured thing that doesn't do what you need it to do um and also the thing that it does is something you don't have institutional knowledge of anyway versus uh, free text, free-for-all, um, like uh, IRC on, on steroids, right? Is, is that a fair way of framing it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's kind of 
so one of the things that we talk about is like the affordances of the digital technology. So it's like, you know, if something's built in electoral context and especially a lot of the, um, the tools that are out there are built in like a US context as well. So then they kind of have like baked into the system, this kind of like top down, um, top-down method of organizing. And then also, like you say, like it's maybe more about lobbying. Um, and then, yeah, you're right that like the alternative is that people use off-the-shelf tools and kind of like retrofit it to their purposes and kind of string things together. Um, and yeah, often they are these kind of just like a stream of chats, which is very kind of stressful and hard to actually kind of manage a lot of the time. Right. You have like on the on, on the one hand, you have a software that has like hard-coded strings that say, call your senator. Or on the other hand, you have no structure whatsoever. Um, you have to figure it all out. Yeah. That, that, that seems, yeah, totally. That seems to be the way it kind of proceeds. And like, so in a, in a sense that 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 kind of latter thing where you use kind of, as I said before, like commodity software. So, you know, Google Docs, Google Sheets, um, WhatsApp is very common in the UK for people doing organizing. Um, you use, you know, and you kind of string this stuff together. Uh, you kind of string it together. Zapier, I, I, can, I never remember how to pronounce that. Zapier. Zapier. <laughs> Zapier is a common uh, piece of software that people use to kind of like string this kind of stuff together to kind of have a coherent kind of like data stream of stuff. Um, but that 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 kind of like set of like suite of like techniques where you kind of use this uh, commercially available software to kind of organize campaigns like has a name and that name is, uh, originally it was kind of called uh, big organizing um there was a book by uh, becky bond and zach i can't remember the last name um that that was written about this which is called rules for revolutionaries and this is about how to organize a campaign at scale in their particular case the bernie sanders campaign um using you know these kind of these kind of technologies and so the so yeah, as Gemma says, there's this tension between, you know, using the technologies that exist that aren't fit for this particular purpose. So using like, you know, something like Google Sheets, which is, you know, a generic spreadsheet product um, that is online and is, is shareable and so on and so forth, um, that allows you to kind of twist that in a way to use it in a kind of organizing context and using bespoke tools, which currently in the most part uh, are not, uh, yeah, as we said, generally fitted towards the American context. Um, you know, things like uh, um, things like MPG Van, uh, also you know things like uh, Nation Builder, so on and so forth. Um, they're kind of fitted to U.S. context, and not only just a U.S. context geographically, but a uh, electoral context specifically. Either electoral on one side, I guess, or basically lobbying. Uh, is the other thing, like um, advocacy as opposed to organising. Yeah, it's almost like a lot of the stuff we've been talking about on the show, right, of the the sort of mutual fit between uh, technology and institutions and social social usage of the technology and such. I, I guess a, a sort of thing we're quite interested in is like the the experience of like setting up a kind of workers co-op and stuff. And like, um, I guess, did any of you have experience with work with workers co-ops before, or was, was there anything kind of interesting about the process or any particular obstacles that you encountered, or maybe was it just a kind of boring slog to, to get the paperwork together? 
Um, yeah, it was it was basically a boring slog to get the clay web together. There's something about society that um, prevent you know doesn't make uh, founding a workers' co-op very easy. Mm. Uh, what I is the price? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, to speak to your, your first question, which is like, you know, did any of us have any background in cooperatives? Like, I I have in the past like worked uh, for a cooperative which is called Outlandish, which is a UK-based cooperative um, that is. Uh, also like a, a tech cooperative and that's like maybe something we can talk about a little bit later which is the in the UK there's uh, a kind of a network of tech cooperatives called Kotec um, at the, the founding meeting of Kotec Kotec I argued very hard for it not to be called Kotec so I thought it was a terrible <laughs> name but um, I lost oh, no. that argument I lost that argument I yeah I wanted to think but it was kind of inspired, and I know that you've had you've had these folks on the uh, the podcast. It was kind of inspired by the Inspiral Network to some degree um, mm-hmm. that Lumio is part of, and a variety of other co ops out of New Zealand. And so there's a, there's a similar network in the UK that's called Kotec. And I had previously um, worked with uh, Outlandish, who are uh, yeah, as I said, a tech cooperative. And so I had some experience of both being in a cooperative um, prior to working at Common Knowledge or founding Common Knowledge. Um, so I kind of like knew some of the things that uh, like some of the kind of internal infrastructure that one would require, um, which is, for example, using a particular decision-making technique that we use uh, in Common Knowledge and a few other tech co-ops use called sociocracy. Um, but in terms of like actually bootstrapping and, and like starting one, um, I didn't really have a vast amount of experience. Um, we were very lucky because we have we're part of this network. We kind of knew some people who would be supportive. Um, so there is uh, a kind of a co-op that that is, I guess, uh, provides advice um, called Principle Six, um, who are run by a guy called Sean, and he. Yeah, so he kind of guided us through the process. So that process looked like trying Just to, to say he's kind of like the um, yeah this kind of figure in the co-op movement who guides every co-op through this process. He's yeah. like quite quite amazing um, and really on call. Like I've emailed him before, being like, "I have this question," and he's like literally called me up and be like, "Here's what you should do." <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean. He 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 is from um, he is a member of Calverts who are a print like a cooperative, print yeah. yeah, print co-op in in London, and they've been like doing this since I think the uh, maybe the late seventies to early eighties. So they are very experienced in this kind of world. He's also uh, part of um, uh, Co-ops UK and like yeah. part of the Hive, which is kind of like the incubator for co-ops. Um, so yeah, it's it's re- like I think that this these kind of things that exist for setting up a co-op do make the kind of bureaucratic side of it slightly more easy, like that you can hook into this kind of network. Um, although I do have a different experience because I didn't found the co-op, I joined it. So I guess I got to skip some of uh, the boring stuff. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that it was boring or particularly difficult. It's just that um, there is like, yeah, it's you it's good to have someone guide you through the process because like the, f- the first couple of questions that that will be asked w- are because obviously like a co-op is as well as being like in our particular case something that like wants to create like social change produce software that does that is also like you know a business uh to some degree and you know the kind of questions that that he would lead us through are you know 
what what kind of work do you want to do like and therefore what is the institution on the legal form that is appropriate to that work um that was actually what like my kind of reaction when you asked that question was kind of I think a lot of the obstacles or like learnings are basically like around setting up a business rather than setting up a co-op I think the co-op part of it is almost easier because it's really about these kind of like you know these are the principles these are the values and it's stuff that really like resonates um on many different levels and like a political thing and you have all these other people to kind of talk about but then a lot of the time like at the end of the day where like the way that we're set up is as like a um uh wait what is it (laughs) i can't remember the actual legal structure so the legal legal structure of common knowledge and like uh is, is quite a simple legal structure to go for if, if in certainly under UK law that you want to form a cooperative is uh, a company limited by guarantee without share capital. Yeah. And um, this is a common legal structure that's also used for organisations, for example, um, NEON, New Economics, uh, New, Econ- Econ- New Economy Organising Network, shout out to them. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's a common thing for kind of uh, think tanks, other social good infrastructure and so on and so forth to form under this particular rubric uh, because it means that no one can like no, you don't have shares so no one can like own you or or, or buy you out and, and so on and so forth um and in particular so we, we have that but then what makes us a co-op is that we have um our kind of articles our kind of like legal articles are have cooperative rules mm. um and unfortunately like the process in order to like have a company limited by guarantee with cooperative rules in UK law, is is it requires filling in a paper form, and there was a whole debacle in the early days where we filled it in slightly wrong, and then there was a back and forth and all the rest of it. Hmm. But yeah, as as Jen says, it wasn't onerous, but it was, you know, it took a, it took a little while um, to set up. I think the main thing, yeah, is like the challenges are around your you're trying to learn how to run a business and set up a business, but a lot of the time maybe what you're doing is not kind of suited to like the context of late capitalism. (laughs) And so then there's like extra things along the way that are difficult because nothing's kind of been, um, you know, uh, the bureaucracy or whatever, it doesn't allow, or it, it makes it harder if you're kind of like, oh, there's no one person who has, significant control of the organization like that's been a problem for us um and I think that there's also like the other kind of behind the scenes stuff that you have to learn so like um just uh like what would be I guess termed like HR um in normal terms like members like how you deal with holidays or mental health, how you deal with finances. And so you're trying to work out that kind of stuff. But also, how do we do this in like a non-hierarchical, democratic, um, sometimes radical way? (laughs) And so it just kind of adds like an extra challenge in that way. Um, But I think like a good challenge and it's, it's super interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I guess the upside is that it can be done, um, which I think is our listeners will find to be very, very reassuring. Yeah, it it definitely Definitely. can be done. It definitely can be done. And, you know, it's easier than you think. Do it today. (laughs) Yeah, 
get involved start like the, the, the only thing you need to do is start and you know yeah. as I always say and I'm probably gonna regret saying this on a podcast but like you know reach out to us we can talk to you certainly we can give you some advice we can give you some advice in the UK context yeah absolutely we'll we'll certainly um we'll put our we'll put your link uh prominently on the show notes oh dear uh yeah uh, so just to provide a point of comparison you know uh I previously set up a uh, consultancy business and the paperwork and process involved in that uh, as a sole proprietorship was basically two days of work. Hmm. It was uh, go in, register the business with a name. So I just had to think about the name, register it, go to the bank, spend a day in the bank getting a business account (laughs) is done. So uh, just just to provide that point of conspira- comparison to your mm-hmm. uh, comment about the difficulties of navigating late capitalism, <laughs> is, it, it's very yeah. the system is very much organized towards uh, setting up sole proprietor businesses or you know registered businesses as uh, capitalist concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, that's, 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 that's very true. And, you know, if, if, if us in this podcast wanted to set up a company like in the UK right now, like we could just go online, we could set it up within like 15 minutes, like, um, mm-hmm. and that's maybe not even an exaggeration on some of the, the services that will do this for you. Setting up a co-op is going to be a little bit more involved, but it's not that, it's not really that bad. Um, the, the advice I would give is that don't attempt to set up a, like, don't imagine this is going to be like a kind of uh, t- like a, a fortnight kind of situation. Imagine it's going to take you three months because on, you know, in terms of the technical operation, you're going to need stuff that, you know, any business would need. But in a cooperative business, it's like a little bit, a little bit tougher. So you're going to need like a bank account. So, for example, you know, if you were minded to get a bank account with uh, Monzo or which is, you know, they have business accounts or you're in the UK and or one of these kind of like very quick, like startup banks, like it's very, like they don't, they basically don't allow it. Um, not because you're a co-op, but because if you are constituted in this particular way, company limited by guarantee. And you get, you understand all these kind of like uh, in- weird, like kind of legal edge cases that, um, y- you know, if, if yeah. So, th- so what I'm saying is that it's, it's not hard, um, but it, it takes a little bit longer. And obviously like this, 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 for reasons that that probably obviously your listeners, this like disincentivizes people from going down this route to some extent. So like you know, some people might be like, oh, I don't know, like I want to like make uh, cookies and I, I want to be ethical about it, and I don't know. And you know, they will often like just pick the, the company formation that is the kind of default, which is you know, just a company limited by share capital, like with a couple of uh, people that are directors of that company without having the cooperative rules and all the other stuff of this on top. Mm. And that's because it's easier. And I think that, I think one of the things that we are, we try and advocate is that, particularly in our kind of space, is that when people come to us and they say, yeah, uh, I want to drop out of my tech job. I hate it. Like we're not, we're making the world a better place, which is genuinely something that people come to us and say relatively regularly. The first thing we say is like, yeah, if you're going to do this, um, obviously, you know, some business models might not see this. Some kind of things that people want to do might be better suited to be a charity or, or so on and so forth in terms of legal formation. What we say to them is, well, I think that considering your values and considering what you want to do, 
maybe a particular, maybe a co-optive is, is right for you. Yeah. And maybe also to kind of counter the like, oh, it's difficult part um, is that I think, um, especially with like kind of tech companies, like like ones that um, tend to be quite small and already working in like fairly collaborative ways and and doing something where like the um, the main product, I guess, that you're selling is the output of your labor. Like this kind of stuff actually works really well as a worker co-op um, and can like, yeah, like so that there's actually good reasons for doing it that way. Um and then the second thing would be that you can also, it, just because you've set up a business and it's not a co-op doesn't mean that that's out forever. You can convert, like I think Outlandish, for example, was originally not a co-op and became a co-op and same with another couple in the co-tech network. So it's like, it's possible like to just change your kind of company structure a little bit. Yeah. I wonder to what extent, like, you know, as much as it's possible, legally speaking, to very quickly uh, found a capitalist organization. Um, obviously, if you're going to properly go into business, you're going to be formulating a business plan and, and doing all kinds of logistical labor uh, prior to that moment. And so I wonder if it's it's mostly a question of like dovetailing those organizational concerns with the legal application, uh, just knowing beforehand that it's going to take a little bit longer to do it with a co-op. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think that that is definitely the the case. And like, for example, like some like, for example, in the UK, uh, the the natural place to uh, found to have a bank account for a cooperative that will kind of understand it and get it that you're a co-op and that like certain things that Jen was talking about, like the fact that like all your members are directors, you know, you don't have persons of significant control, all these kind of like legal factors is to go to the cooperative bank. (laughs) <laughs> the UK cooperative right. bank, yeah, which is you know obvious, and but the thing about them is you know they require a quite detailed business plan um, up front. So in, t- in answer to your question, like knowing that like the wheels are going to take a while, yeah, you, sh- you should try and think about and try and develop that. I mean, without like being becoming too tedious about. Obviously, Common Knowledge us are an institution that is attempting to do something more widely than just be, you know, a business that like sells sprockets. Like we're not, we're not that. We're a nonprofit. We're attempting to like provide technology for people that are, you know, organizers. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, we have to think about how we're going to keep ourselves afloat. You know, what so so, you know, if you're thinking about I I would like, you know, if you're a I don't know, an, an engineer or designer or UX person, you're thinking, you know, what, I, I want to escape this. I want to like get out of the, the mainstream tech industry and want to do something uh, more worthwhile with my time, my finite time on earth. Mm, you're reading my mind here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, uh, you, <laughs> I lost my thread of thought because <laughs> I was thinking about my own mortality. Um, <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, just just slipped into the black hole there for a moment. So, were, were you trying to say basically that like if if you do want to get out of the rat race and do something positive, maybe like you need to take it seriously, do the do the financial plan, and like get the belt and braces in place, and like yeah, it's it's boring, but you have to do it. Is that it? Is that it? Yeah, you have to do it. So you need to you need to think you need to think what is the you know we live in under capitalism for the moment. We have to cope with you know wage labor uh 
co-ops have always been like this. Co-ops have always been, you know, uh, a place of employment as well as a place of, of social change. So you need to work out what's, what's the basic thing. What are you going to sell um, and so I, on and so forth? I think also like one thing that um, has worked to our advantage is we've always been really clear from the start of like, this is the specific thing we do. Um um, you know, kind of talking about tools for grassroots activism. And I think that that clarity, not saying that everyone needs to be doing that exact thing, <laughs> um, but like that clarity around this kind of mission, I think really helped us throughout. We also like right at the start when we started on this, like completely full time, like quit our other jobs and everything. We spent, I think it was like two or three days like in a room working out like, okay, what's our vision, mission and values and, you know, doing many, many iterations. And like, I guess it doing something like that forces everyone in the room or encourages everyone in the room to kind of articulate, why am I doing this? What do I care about? And then also like we, we refer to these a lot. Like we even set them as like weekly <laughs> intentions. Um, and we use that to decide, should we work on this project as well? So I think like having that basis from the start, like as well as a business plan, like the kind of like ethical and like conceptual framework is really, really important. Yeah. Um, and it did take, it took us a, a long while to like thrash those out. But, um, you know, as Gemma says, like it allows us to orientate ourselves. So like, you know, our, our mission is working directly with grassroots activists. We design digital tools that make radical change possible. So like when, you know, we're like approaching a collaboration with someone, that are some of the questions that we will ask ourselves. Like, does this serve this mission or is this tangential to that mission? And also, and also to remind ourselves, like, are we working directly with these people or is it kind of like... Um, a level kind of removed like we really try to be um talking to people on the ground and talking to members and that kind of thing um so I think it it having a kind of statement like that keeps us accountable as well yeah and and I think I, I hope like accountable to like those outside the the co-op because like we're you know uh we want to be accountable to the social movements that we serve uh, in a way. There's an aspect of kind of like service to the work we do. You know, we we aren't, I, th I feel that we aren't doing the work ourselves, right? We're not actually, we're activists of a certain kind or like organisers of a certain kind, but we're not, you know, we're not in a grassroots trade union. We're not on the ground co being community organised. <laughs> yeah, you're in a grassroots <laughs> trade union. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a couple of people in, in common knowledge that are a part of trade unions. I'm not actually. I feel bad. Um, but yeah, so um, it's more about making sure we're supporting these people. Yeah, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's far more important to you know provide the infrastructure that allows people the freedom, the possibility to articulate their struggles or the social change that they want to see, than like for us to be in the foreground, I guess. Yeah. Are there, so working with these social movements and, and such, like, are there any, like, do you find that there are recurring patterns of the kinds of problem that these movements have that they, that they run into and that, that the kinds of problems you can solve for them or help them to solve, et cetera? 
Um, I think, I think, um, a big, I don't know if it's problem, but like a a big focus or what we've been thinking about lately is how you build relationships with your membership and how you kind of like engage them and everything. And like, I think, um, uh, you know, we talk about like different, um, levels of organizing. There was a great report by Tectonica that came out a little while ago um, that kind of analyzes this. Um, They kind of talk about uh, broadcasting, mobilizing and organizing. I mean, it's something that we were already talking about, but they made a really nice graphic as well (laughs) and backed it up with loads of evidence. And I think that... um, you know, a lot of um, the really good organizers are trying to get more on the kind of organizing and like distributed or- organizing end of that rather than just like sending out a newsletter, tweeting, like getting people to share something on Twitter. Um, so, yeah, I think that this is kind of one of the key things that we talk to people about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's like super fundamental for common knowledge is that we're building tools for organizing. So this 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 kind of this kind of like division is it should be said that this division doesn't mean that like mobilizing is never worthwhile or mobilizing is never needed as part of a coherent campaign for social change um but this distinction from between mobilizing and organizing is something internally and externally we talk about a lot so it's a distinction between you know people um on one side, uh, just being like people not really having autonomy within the campaign, people just like being told what to do and organizing, which is where people concretely are building their own power and they have the capacity to, to, to make, to make change. So one is like quite passive and one is quite active. And I think that as you know, the top, the top we are talking about the way that electoral campaigns like operate, electoral campaigns often operate, uh, in a kind of, um, the kind of mobilizing mobilizing mode although increasingly they are getting more into this organizing kind of mode so that you know in organizing you know the people are like relationally powerful they're empowered they're in kind of like democratic with a small d in a certain sense control over the organizations that they work with like london renters union who who we work with which is both small d democratic i.e there's a by small d democratic, I mean like uh, there's an ethos of democracy, there's an ethos of participation and control, but they're also big d democratic, i.e. they have formal like elections to the board and various functions of the organisation. So I think that's an important distinction for us. We're not building, we're not interested particularly, um, although this is obviously a natural part of our work because it's often the the, the door in to uh, a more structured organising campaign. We're not particularly about uh, lobbying per se we're not about you know the the classic and of course they operate and they work like the kind of things that an organization like 38 degrees might do where you know there's a there's a form and there's like a you know lobby your mp like send them a petition that kind of thing although it has its place and it's important part of as i say a structured campaign for social change um we're more interested in providing or, or understanding how we might provide with others and and understand how to build digital tools for more the organizing aspect so more that yeah sorry oh sorry didn't mean to interrupt um yeah I I was just going to kind of pick up on this like I think I think what's interesting so we try to work um with a really broad range of kind of activist concerns I guess we're not focused on one particular thing um but amongst all these different groups even if they have like 
um, quite different areas that they're working and maybe like structures or sizes or whatever, like often a common question is like, um, you know, how can we encourage or train or empower like our members to become organizers themselves? So like this idea that it's not just, yeah, like passive membership, um, but, um, you know, giving people the confidence and the power to organize. Um, but there's obviously, that's much harder and much slower. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we're not terribly good at doing it either. I mean, this 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 organizing thing has been a fascination of ours for this entire length of the show. I, I like that, that you've, you've drawn that distinction there between organizing versus mobilization. I, I, I kind of suspect that like our our concepts of like mobilization really date from like the um, the sort of great power politics and like the big state politics of the like 19th and 20th centuries where like they would conceive of like these military mobilizations as like mobilizing this like otherwise inert mass of the the the, the people and like being directed from above to be like they're they're mobilized they're not, they're not mobilizing themselves they're being they're being pushed around yeah but i think that's specifically uh, the specifically the french revolution right mhm absolutely right and but like I, I think those concepts still echo in our heads like they're they're still kind of structuring the way we think about even engaging in politics it's still kind of implicitly about that kind of um passive mobilization or like a, a passive material that is mobilized by an external like sort of a external or like a hierarchically above them sort of active agent mm-hmm. whereas organizing is very different like it's a very different thing entirely like it's the the uh the the, the pe- people themselves organizing their their, their active matter uh, rather than just being passively pushed around um on the uh on the, the you know the, the huge uh battle tables you know with the little little <laughs> sticks and they put push around the little wooden soldiers you know to to move things around yeah I, very different models you know yeah i think that's that's totally right and i think that um that is the model that that we're trying to to um to facilitate which is that kind of like bottom up like like radically democratic the building the capacity you know like again like <laughs> referring back to one of our values which is that we like and this is this is something that we think about like when we're approaching a project like are we genuinely doing this and we're quite hard on ourselves sometimes i'm like are we genuinely doing this or are we kind of bullshitting ourselves that we're doing this like and i think i I hope that like we continually like return to it's like uh, common knowledge seeks to empower people to change their own lives through self-organization and this this notion of self-organization there's obviously like you know has a place in cybernetics and 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 so on and so forth that we want to uh want to encourage uh, but the key to the is that in a way you know we spent a long time on these so there's this reason why they're uh structuring the way they are which is like you know we trust the end of it is like we trust that people can and that's like you know, we trust that people can organize themselves and with a little bit of help, a little bit of like, they can run with it. And I think that some of the problem um, with those kind of like top down and hierarchical models is they don't believe that people can run with it and that people can change their own lives and can organize themselves. And they feel that hierarchical power is the only methodology through which um, things occur when that's just simply not the case. Because they, they they fundamentally believe that people are inert and that they they only they the vanguard are the real active agents and that if they if they stop pushing like this this is a kind of unfortunate kind of specter inside the activist mindset is that if the activist stops pushing the otherwise inert people that that the motion will stop 
is that that's, I think that's the implicit belief at the heart at the heart of a a lot of a lot of that kind of thinking that kind of is is in that mobilization framework and is not really in the organization framework. And I guess like the whole history of this show has been us carping on about the same point, right? That like you have to organize something that's self organizing and kickstart a process that will continue itself, even in the absence of any particular push from any particular activist. Um, yeah. I, I think like a good activist or a good organizer kind of also wants to organize himself out of the equation. Yeah. They want to stay home because it's, it's a lot of work, you know? So I'll give, <laughs> I'll give like, I'll give like two brief like anecdotes about that. Like, so like, that's exactly right. Like a good organizer should like be like a slight catalyst in the situation and then like step back. So like in particular, this is like in a digital context, there was a chat room uh, in which there was a bunch of um, there was a bunch of people who were tech workers. So they worked in technology in London, um, and uh, basically, you know, they've been in a Slack channel essentially for like a long while. And basically, all that was needed was was us, us. Well, in particular, like a few, a couple of us, just to, just to like suggest a venue to me, and then then they went off. And the rest is history. Now, like, I'm, I don't want to like foreground ourselves in that particular equation, but that is like what organisers do in the sense that they they recognise the situation that's going on, and because they have a little bit more knowledge than than others about what is necessary to drive this forward, they intervene with like a very small thing, and they trust that given that there's this very small intervention, it will just it, the, the system will run itself, and that that that's really good, and and like. But but as Gemma says, the 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 thing to know as an organizer is when to step back. And there's a really another anecdote that uh someone who's a community organizer, so uh community organizing is uh, a very complex tradition, there's different ways of doing it, there's kind of like a radical pedagogy kind of way of doing it, there's like Sololinsky, um, who's like, you know, very famous uh particular community organizer, blah, blah, blah. There's the acorn style of community organizing so on and so forth um but uh, you know this community organizer uh, s- you know said that they would you know pr- they would they would forget to go to meetings deliberately because then the system would run itself people had learned enough and i think that's another thing is the for, for us like an educative function is really important like telling people like what not what to do, but like what the capacities of particular technologies that would allow them to organize themselves more effectively. Um, and yeah, explain that to them and knowing when to, yeah, to step away because we're not about we're we try as much as possible to produce technologies that allow people, allow us to completely disappear off the picture and these things still to, still to run. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think I've, had plenty of experience with the mobilization model in political parties. Uh, you know, one example that comes to mind is during the last election here in Alberta, uh, which was a crushing, crushing defeat for the social Democrats. Uh, we were all mobilized as canvassers and it was all very top down. Uh, and then, you know, the day before election day when we do the final push to get out the vote we had a general assembly of the uh of of the canvassers uh with the activist from the ndp um and the activist was up there you know been flown in from toronto or something because uh 
the NDP is a national party as well as a provincial one uh, and was going on and on about, okay, here's the strategy. And at one point, uh, Comrade just stood up and she like questioned the approach he was taking uh, and he was kind of flabbergasted and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, but then he thought about it and he sort of backed down and I was like, oh, okay, this is like the first moment I've had at this party where I felt like something positive was happening. Oh no, <laughs> right at the end too. <laughs> the first positive thing happens right at the end. Yeah. Th- and then we, then we had a crushing defeat because the message we were getting out at the doorstep was just utterly awful and, 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 and futile, but you know, it was, uh, you, you see those small moments of self-organizing or the germs of self-organizing. You're like, yeah, that's something I could get behind. Um, yeah, we need to get behind more of that then. Um, is there is there anything else you'd like to to talk about uh, before we before we start to sign off? Yeah, I, I think I think that that particular example is um, one that is a very familiar uh, territory in the sense that uh, political parties, you know, as we said at the top of the show, like we're not especially interested in organizing. Uh, around electoral politics. Uh, obviously, the elections can't be ignored, but we feel as an organisation, our emphasis is elsewhere. Um, but like, that is a, like an absolutely classic, classic thing, um, which is that, yeah, you treat your, uh, you know, your kind of door, your kind of canvases as like this inert matter who are given like a rote script and just like told to get on with it rather than being, you know, adaptive people that like understand uh, their particular, you know, area, but their particular, like, you know, the streets that they have been, you know, assigned to go around. And, you know, you, you ask them like, you know, within a couple of weeks of an election, like to support your party and you'd never, you've never built any relationships with them. You have no relational, uh, you, you, you've not empowered, and it's not just, it's a two-way relationship, right? You have not in any way empowered the people that you're particularly canvassing in any way to build their own power, build, build their own capacity, build their own ability to influence events. You just, it's a purely transactional relationship. Will you vote for me or, or not? And then you, you know, you tick them off the list and you move on to the next um, thing. And, and I think that, you know, many of the of the institutions that kind of exist, like have have that model. They don't trust people enough to mm-hmm. be able to do stuff. But fundamentally, they are suspicious of people doing stuff for themselves. And this is there are a variety of reasons for that. Some sensible, but some of them are just basically cowardice, like lack of trust in people's basic capacities to do things, and. You know, uh, I think that that is like for, for us at least, like, and I think it's very important to remember that people can do incredible things. People can yeah. do amazing things, and also that they, prob- yeah, they know their context best. Yeah, I think I think as well. Like, it's interesting just to bring up the trust thing as well because I I feel like if if we're thinking about like maybe the challenges that social movements face or any organization. Um, uh, it, it is also related to trust in that like decision making can be very difficult because organizations look for like consensus 
And I think um, it's quite interesting. So Alex mentioned it before, and I think maybe it's also you've discussed it on the show previously, but like this idea of sociocracy, which is about consent rather than consensus. And I think that's also about like you're saying to the other people you're organizing with directly or maybe like the other like other small parts of like a larger organization is like, I trust you to make decisions like on behalf of this organization, like that's relevant to your context. And like, and that we're not trying to look for this kind of, everyone is absolutely like on board with the same exact idea or has to even be involved in the decision-making. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I I think like um, for me, like, it, it's very dark here in Edinburgh right now, and I've been feeling very doomy for the last couple of months. And, you know, it's, it's very easy to, especially like on this, this day is like the anniversary of Labour getting absolutely fleeced in the last year's election. And it's, it's very easy to feel very down about that and to feel that like the, the right are always going to be in, in power and like the capitalists are always going to rule. But the thing is like they, they, they also treat everyone like swine who can't possibly be clever or capable of organizing themselves and it's i think this is the angle that through which we could get a a real genuine leg up on them is that like they can't treat people like human beings but we can and we should and if if we're repeating basically the same like if we're approaching people in the same way that capitalists do and treating them as just inert fucking objects to be uh messed with or to be like kind of pushed around that's definitely a losing strategy for us, but the opposite of it, I think, ha- it hopefully, has real potential to if it if it is built out properly and like we really go out and and empower people to organize. That's the paradigm shift. That's that's the difference that makes the difference between bourgeois society and what we're hoping to build. Right? Is that we believe that people are in fact people and that they are intelligent organisms capable of organizing themselves. They are social beings. They have a social interest in one another that is not activated or sustained in this society. Like the, the whole the whole force of capital and the force of the right pushes against all of that. But we can push in favor of it, you know? We, we can actually treat human beings as human beings. Yeah. I really like that framing as well, because I think that a lot of the time activism is like framed as you're against something because horrible things are happening. And I quite like this kind of like, oh, you know, that, um, you know, uh, in terms of our vision, right, we talk about abundance and like I, I much prefer that kind of positive fr- framing of like we want a world where people are treated like people and that there is abundance and, you know, you can um, live the kind of life you want to live. Yeah, and I think, I think like returning to the start, which was like the kind of like slightly dull bureaucracy of forming cooperatives, like, like forming a co-op isn't like the total solution to those problems of alienation and you know the looming climate crisis and all the rest of those kind of things but you know these these were like the cooperative movement is relatively old and these were always organizations like initially of like uh, working class self-organization um to build like solidarity and social power and i feel that you know like Collectively, those are some of the things, you know, in a new form, in a fresh form for like the 21st century, using difficult, different things and uh, different ways of like operating. But they are definitely part of the, the puzzle. 
and and I feel that yeah, they they provide uh, not the total answer, of course, but like part of the answer. Um, cooperatives like they're very variegated, you know, like the co-op supermarket is not the same as us or people within Kotak, but they are, it is a different mode of, of social, of social life. Mm-hmm. And it is a mode of social life. I mean, let me be, let me be absolutely like Frank. I don't have a boss. <laughs> like I don't have a boss. And that is a fundamental liberation it's so good. <laughs> like, so I don't have anyone I need to suck up to. I don't need anyone that I need to like buy off through uh, anyone that I need to worry about like pleasing. I, I, you know, I, I want to like make sure that our collective continues and, and does the important work that I hope that we're able to, and that people will like want us to collaborate on. But, you know, I don't have a boss and that is an intense liberation. Mm-hmm. I don't have to think, about all this stuff this kind of like junk that is in your is in your head when you have a regular job and again like you know i want to be modest like i'm not saying this is like the total solution but the liberation of just not having a boss is quite incredible and i encourage people to get on that because it's good it's good fun yeah especially starting from zero like i mean we're, we're in such a bad state anyway like this is going to be an improvement no, no matter what the the left comms say it's like oh well co-ops are just self-exploitation it's like yeah whatever <laughs> the way um, that i always like to think about it is like worker co-ops is like prefiguring the kind of future we want and i think the same can be said of like uh grassroots trade unions and community organizations and all of that like all of it is building little utopias <laughs> with the current system yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, just sort of picking up that point that Shane brought up earlier, uh, you know, to the extent that the bosses do make attempts to treat us like people, uh, it ends up falling under that sort of HR rubric. And, you know, in the uh, oral history of Kickstarter that we covered recently, uh, the w- one crucial moment that I picked up on was uh, that as their self-organizing started to get going, they started to realize that HR was there to provide like legal protection for the bosses and to defend morale in the name of the bosses. And, you know, if we can provide that kind of prefigurative politics or self-organizing, then I think that the the crumbs that were served up uh, <clears throat> frequently by the bosses um, are just not going to cut it. And there there's political power there, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There certainly is. Um, well, Gemma and Alex, this has been wonderful. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Um, I, we we very much appreciate it, and um, th- these these conversations are always invigorating. It's it's nice to go from uh, you know just l- looking out into the inky blackness of the sky here and thinking, wow, Jesus, <laughs> there's no hope at all, and to to having this conversation and thinking, wow, there is hope. Um, it's wonderful. No, there there is hope, but it's just unevenly distributed at the moment, unfortunately. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, thanks very much, folks. Yeah. That was super really fun. fun. And we're back. Um, as I said, as I said to them, like energizing, you know, really energizing, especially in these kind of like very depressing couple of months. 
And uh, at the end of, well, I keep saying at the end of Hellier, but we all know that time is imaginary, so it's not the end of anything. Hellier will always live in our hearts. Um, but, you know, there's something definitely invigorating about getting to talk to people about this kind of thing and uh, feeling that maybe maybe there is some hope. Maybe there's something here, you know? Yeah, uh, I think one thing that really stood out to me was the degree to which they do self-critique around are we actually promoting self-organization, which reminded me a lot of um, in uh, Stafford Beer's memoirs about the Chilean revolution, after he finishes the initial draft of the economic organization of, of society or you know gets that ball rolling, he kind of goes back and, and says like, yeah, but are we actually achieving this self-organization? Are we really making the system ones autonomous? Are we making this a broad-based thing that exists uh, outside of the workplaces? And having that moment of self-critical reflection and then going and revising the plans from there, I think is really what creates the breakthroughs. Um, and so seeing that be a part of their practice uh, was quite inspiring um, because, yeah, I think that's that's really what's going to get you past just deploying an organizing tool and then saying, all right, let's go collect our paycheck from XYZ organization or, you know, whatever NGO sponsor, or, you know, like just that, that sort of like NGO bullshitting of like, you know, oh, we've got a solution and then we just go and deploy it and it's like transformative no, actually having that self-critical moment, like, are we actually fulfilling our mission here, I think helps to get beyond that and do something really meaningful. Totally, right? Yeah, because, I mean, it's it's the heart and soul of cybernetics, right? Like, error-correcting feedback and the, the evaluation of performance, right? Because, and I think it's, it's really, it's something that comes up again and again in, like, beer or just in basic cybernetic stuff, but, like, that outcomes are completely indifferent to intentions. Like, the, the result of the process simply doesn't fucking care what you intended to do. And so it is necessary to check. Like you have to actually check that the outcome lines up with your intentions. It's yes. not enough to take it on faith. You have to be the controller for that. Absolutely right. And that's an active process. It's not something you can just assume will flow from the intentions or any of that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, error correcting feedback, even at the level of like, oh, we're, we're people who are going to go out and help people to organize. Well, like, you have to do the error-correcting feedback on that. It's like, did that actually happen? You know, and it, it pays to be kind of hard on yourself, like, like Alex was saying, you know? Yeah, and and to do that sort of uh, mid-project, mid-project, yes. Uh, like, like, don't just do the uh, debrief after the project is over. Actually make it a self-correcting process while the project is being developed and deployed. And a lot of folks will be familiar with that with that kind of concept just from Agile, right? Like Agile as it's supposed to be practiced of like every week or two weeks, you're kind of reformulating the plan and checking like, ah, we set out to build these widgets. Did they actually, did it actually happen? It's like, well, we ended up with a horse. It's like, did we want a horse? Eh, not really, but well, okay, fine. That, that counts as failure, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing that occurred to me during all of this is, uh, you know, the value of these uh, sort of self-organizational ideas, I think, are going to become all the more clear uh, in the coming year because 
like, you know, we have Biden coming in in America and bringing this message of I'm going to bring the technocrats back. I'm going to bring expertise to bear on this situation. Um, But we all kind of know that based on the performance of Democratic governors in America, the performance under Biden is going to be only marginally better than it was under Trump, right? And that idea of the very serious people coming in and solving everything, um, I mean, I guess that might happen with a vaccination, but there's all the questions about deploying the vaccine too, right? And in those situations, I think it's going to become clear that like, yeah, self-organization actually has a lot of value and leaving it all to the very serious people, the technocrats, is a dangerous thing to do. Uh, In the case of the UK, which we've mostly been talking about here, I mean, the the vaccine's getting deployed, but also no deal Brexit appears to be on the horizon and self-organization might be useful in that kind of crisis too. Yeah, right. You're going to be scrambling through the rubble looking for food. You know, you're going to have to be pretty well self-organized. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I think the, the 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 Biden thing is very. It's like a call for demobilization as 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 much as ever got mobilized. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's very clear that that they have done the mobilization, which was just soul crushing and horrible. Uh, and now they're doing the demobilization, which is also soul crushing and horrible. It's the uh, one side of the equation is uh, the only way to deal with any problem is to vote Democratic. And if you don't vote Democratic, then you are uh, basically the scum of the earth. Um, and then after the Democrats are elected, uh, the only thing that you can do is not criticize the Democrats and sit at home and just uh, let them uh, take care of things. And if there, if you see any problems, these problems are uh, are mere illusions that that uh, are uh, entering into your feeble mind. That you, you know, you think there, you think you see fuck ups and problems around you, but like really you're just operating on a lower level of perception of reality. And if you operated at the galaxy brain level that the democratic <laughs> leadership and their partisans operate at, you'd see that this is all the subtle unfolding of a master plan that will lead us to uh, brunch for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Like, can't, can't you see that Kamala Harris is the best thing that's ever happened to any of this kind of shit? I, 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 I posted a fucking thing in the emancipation discord the other day of like, uh, anyone who's familiar with the venture brothers, there's like that scene where it's like, Oh, we've elected our first president, girl, Hitler. And like the boys are like, wow, a girl president. How progressive. <laughs> it's like, Oh Jesus, this is the, this is the fucking Kamala Harris line, you know? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, we can definitely see how that like mobilization, demobilization oscillator is actually a part of how the system stabilizes itself. And the the real way out of that is to not call for oh well well actually Biden's saying to demobilize and we should we should just mobilize further comrades to the to the barricades you know this kind of shit. You have to pivot out of that uh, 
that that binary into like the imaginary numbers space. Like you put add another axis to your thinking <laughs> and move into organization rather than mobilization, um, as 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 Alex was saying. And I think like making that distinction is very important because like I think a lot of a lot of the left and a lot of activist circles get that very badly mixed up, right? There's a there's a mistaking mobilization and just like that kind of like um, thrust and, and movement, right? In a very physical sense, mistaking that for organization is a fatal mistake. Like it's and organization is that much more fundamental thing that has to come before any of that kind of stuff can happen. Like it's the the uh, the animal assembling itself um, and making making its powers real in the world. Um, and that's what you need more than mobilization, right? Yeah, I think what um, occurs to me, and I, I may be wrong, I'm not, you know, a genius, but uh, there's a lot of messaging that has happened prior to Biden getting elected and now that he's been elected and is very, very slowly coming into power. Uh, with his team of uh, Silicon Valley vipers, vampires, <laughs> um, uh, that uh, we need to hold Biden to account. Um, I think that any reasonable analysis would say that that's a fool's errand because we have so much evidence that this is not actually possible under the organizational system we're in. How are you going to fucking hold him to account? So, like, I don't think that holding Biden to account can really be the objective. At best, it should be a side effect of the organizational strategies we pursue because, yeah, like, they are insulated. How are you going to challenge him? Like, what's what's the threat? You know, like, I mean, because I think when those people, when people say that, like, oh, we're going to hold Biden to account, what they very, like, I think what what their neurons are actually firing is they're going to do a clapback on Twitter. Yeah. And that's, that's what's going to hold them to account somehow. It's going to be this big fucking, like, circus act of, like, people just bickering on Twitter about, like, well, I'll have you know that Kamala is actually very woke or all this kind of horseshit. That's not holding anyone to fucking account. That's not a threat. It's not a fucking movement against. It's not an opposition. It's circus, you know? And and the thing is set up in such a way that, okay, first of all, they know, they've known since, I don't know, the 40s, that there will be this backlash from the left and the, on the Democratic Party. Uh, and that's an entirely predictable move. Like, it is... Just 100% known that this uh, sound and fury is going to be coming after the election. Um, Which is the kind of thing they can absorb. Like, they can digest that. And it's it's basically like pushing on a wet noodle uh, in terms of, a, of affecting the direction of the administration. Uh, so, like, we have to have a organizing strategy that is operating orthogonally to our public relationship to the Democratic Party leadership, right? You know, at the state level, you might get a little more traction there, but at the federal level, or for someone like myself in Canada, I feel like I'm only marginally more disempowered than your average American. Like, not by much. Not yeah. by much, really, in dealing with the presidency. Um, just, you know, like, don't spend your energy there because 
these people don't give a shit about you. Like, you know, Biden has been the most clear about that out of anyone. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just said it, you know, like many times on the campaign trail. Like, I literally don't give a flying fuck about the left. Uh <laughs> So, so like when, when we're when we're contemplating strategy, right? Which is the thing that the left always loves to fucking talk about and never actually really does. Um, when we contemplate strategy, we have to contemplate like an economy of strategy or an economy of motion. That like there there is opportunity cost to spending your energy in one domain versus another versus another. Like it's it's a matter of selecting activities and selecting actions to carry out. And if you're doing this whole the holding to account pushback sort of stuff. As you said, that's something they expect. They know that's coming. It's like when you get into your car and you, you know your car inside out and you know that it always kicks a little bit, you know? And it's like, but that's something you can compensate for. You, you literally have a feedback mechanism to compensate for the quirk that happens when you, you boot up your car. They are already compensating for that perfectly predictable pushback in the same way that like, I don't know, like just a protest where you go and wave some placards around. It's like, I mean, it feels energetic and stuff, but... It can be compensated for, it can be absorbed, it can be digested very easily because they see it coming a mile off. They know exactly what's going to happen. Um, and ju- just like the fly fucking flying straight into a spider's web, the spider the spider knows that's going to happen. It knows what comes next. And don't be the fly. You have to organize yourself to be a smarter organism than that fly is. You have to organize yourselves to do things that aren't predictable, that can't be integrated that can't be compensated for by the system. That's the only way to pose a credible threat to it, is if you generate variety that it can't deal with. You have to be ungovernable, you have to be impossible to deal with. And just saying, oh, we'll hold him to account, how are you going to do that? Oh, Facebook post. It's like, fucking congratulations, you've invented the most... You've invented the thing that they knew was coming, and therefore it's in, it's completely ineffective. Um yeah, it, it's just a matter of doing the same sort of work that the common knowledge folks were talking about in their self-critique. It's like, are we fulfilling our mission here? Is this being effective? <laughs> yeah, God help the left. But like, if anyone asks that fucking question, the answer is going to be no, pretty much across the board, you know? For sure, for sure. Uh, you know, for sure. Uh, and that can be very depressing, but... Uh, at the same time, you know, doing the same thing again, like it, it's, 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 it's extremely, it's extremely depressing to have lived through the Obama years and you know, like followed those politics and like basically been radicalized by them and just saying like, you know, as an individual, I am going to draw lessons from this experience, right? Like just, I just, I just want to see what they do. And 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 infer a pattern from that, mm-hmm. and then basic like, cognition. You know? <laughs> that's like just basic behavior, right? Uh, but you you're surrounded by people who refuse to do that. Uh, both in both the sort of like libs, the centrists, and 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 also leftists. Uh, and it's like just just look at your surroundings. And, you know, I understand if you were just a child when Obama was in power and you didn't draw any conclusions from that, it's completely understandable. But for people my age or older, I don't have any sense of uh, sympathy 
for for you know individuals who just like don't do the most basic observation of like what do they say what kind of actions does it lead to what is the pattern here like that's just so simple you do that all the time with like friends and relatives like why why not with the 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 political leadership of your country uh, yeah absolutely right it's it's basic stuff it's basic cognition even this this is what a nervous system does it integrates information and compares expectation to reality and all this sort of stuff but for some reason it's such a difficult pitch to and like you know end up end up thinking i'm the one who's crazy for thinking that maybe error correcting feedback is a good way to fucking go about navigating the world but like i don't know am i, am I the one who's wrong <laughs> you know well and the other thing is like you know uh, probably by February, um, the COVID pandemic is going to be the most lethal event in American history, even more than the Civil War, right? We're probably going to have around 500,000 fatalities. Uh, Biden is not going to do anything to stop that. He's basically doing the same thing Trump was doing, but just kind of like, I don't know. The woke now. You know, it's, it's, I guess it's woke now. Uh, it's... He doesn't seem to have any kind of like serious plan for like making it possible, like providing the social resources necessary for people to do the self-isolation that would actually help with this. So, uh, you know, just wagging your finger at people and, and hoping that the governors cooperate for some, you know, magical reason. Uh, uh, so, yeah, so we're probably looking at like the most uh, lethal event in American history it's 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 horrible. Uh, and, you know, hopefully for those of us who survive, that should uh, provide some kind of opportunities out of the crisis. Like everyone's been caught flat footed because of the pandemic. I mean, it's it's obviously very, very uh bad for organizing when organizing with people is a is a is a very serious risk to your health uh but going forward um you know we need to do things like memorialize the fact that this was actually horrible Mm -hmm. and that some people were responsible for it (laughs) like because i think the thing is like We've gone through an experience that is equivalent to wartime, but it is imagined very differently from that, right? It is imagined... It's imagined as an act of God almost, right? That it's like there there aren't even human agents involved at all. There's no one... Like, it's just, oh, this is just like the weather, you know? It's like it was like a bad... (laughs) It was like there was some bad weather and like... You know, like, oh, like a hurricane blew in and, you know, even I feel like Hurricane Katrina or whatever provoked a more serious kind of like political backlash than what's happened with the pandemic because it's it's not as like visually dramatic. Uh, It doesn't provide that amazing image uh, that would that would hit people in their minds. So, you know, like. Hopefully there's some opportunity there in terms of like memorializing these things. Like, you know, you look at something like, I don't know, the, the, like, uh, for example, the number of Australians and, and Kiwis who were killed at Gallipoli, right? 
it's like a drop in the bucket compared to how many people have died in the last year and are going to die in the next number of months. But people like decades and decades and decades on are still, you know, very focused on this as like core to their national identity and to their conception of history and their, and you know, their place in the world, right? Like Anzac Day is still a very important thing. Um, we've got to be able to like memorialize this in some meaningful way that people are like, oh no, actually like this system is completely fucked. It failed us utterly and got so many people we know killed. Uh, and, and like, hopefully some self-organization could happen around that because um, I, I don't want to just let that opportunity sit by the wayside uh, so that I could sit around on Twitter and, and complain to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's, you know, uh, media relations team. Yeah, I'm totally with you on all that, right? And um, I mean, if, even just the probably the need to like insist that it ever even happened is going to be a thing. Like I think people are going to want to try to forget that it ever fucking happened. Um, and yeah, this, this, this moment that like just highlights the sheer like incapacity and instability of the state or just how, how, how stable and effective it can be in an extremely narrow domain and how just th- threadbare and, and like pin the whole, the whole thing is. Um, and that, that should do a couple of things for, for, for socialists, right? Like is, highlight that like yeah the, the the state isn't a kind of like impermeable all pervasive like higgs field that's just everywhere at all times it is actually a fairly anemic but very strong sort of thing like it was strong in a narrow domain um and highlight the kind of instabilities it has and like the the sign it, it, it will highlight capacities that it has but it's also going to ha- highlight a lot of incapacities and just like things that it can't really respond to um and also I guess the sort of like middle way sort of thesis that like, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe exploitation is bad and maybe this value form stuff is horrible, but maybe, you know, the, the state basically works. I mean, it's like, it's still kind of, it's still got your back ultimately. And it's like, no, that, that, that illusion has to have been shattered. <laughs> really does it. Yeah. By now that has to have been shattered completely. Right. That, 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 that argument can't really hold anymore. That kind of like classic centrist sort of argument. Um, I feel I need to correct a few things about this. It's the most lethal event so far in American history. And um, I feel like pandemics are going to become like the weather. It's just like, wow, Jesus, really strong pandemic today, you know? (laughs) For the sake of clarity, it's worth pointing out that this episode was recorded in December of 2020, before the new variants of the coronavirus were widely acknowledged to be a problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, th- that's that's true. It, it seems that, given the scale of industrial agriculture we're doing, the scale of deforestation we're doing, and the uh, rate at which uh, global warming is affecting the global ecosystem, you know, it's just a matter of time until another one of these rolls around. We're going to be back in the phase of history prior to the 20th century where just scourges just rolling across the earth constantly. Yeah, a a plague rolls around. There's no easy or immediate solution to it. And that's just going to be part of reality. Mm -hmm. Just like, yeah, the... The, the Prussia has a scourge today. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, that's just going to be the news, right? Um, yeah, wow. It's going to be 
I'm looking for. I'm I, I, honestly, I don't know. I mean, like, are we going to see a COVID twenty one? Maybe. What are the over under on that? You know. Uh, I mean, it, it's 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 fairly likely. It's just a question of like. I mean, it's it's not fairly likely. It has already happened with that uh, outbreak that came out of the uh, mink farms in Denmark. <laughs> yeah, but the, we were just fortunate enough that the the mutation was not sufficiently distinct in order to make it invulnerable to the vaccines we've developed that's just luck it's just blind luck uh and you know we we just had in canada i didn't even know these existed but yeah we actually have mink farms in vancouver and we had the same thing happen there and this is like i don't know months no, not months, but like a month after this happened in Denmark, it happened in Vancouver and no one thought like, oh, wait, maybe this is a problem. Maybe we should call the makes beforehand. Uh, stop it, this it's shit, like, yeah. Okay, oh, no. sure. So it like the 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 sites where this could happen are so many because we have we have just created this enormous attack surface. In terms of uh, the in terms of the uh, the factory farming of mammals, yeah, and av- avoiding like I mean, I think it's basically inevitable that it'll like I mean, yeah, with the mink thing, like total luck that it, that it isn't a sort of extra viable kind of strain of its own. Sometimes entropy works in your favor. Most most times it doesn't. Um, I think yeah, to 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 hope that this won't reemerge in a different form. Like, who the fuck knows? It's going to be a llama flu or something next time. In order for that to not happen, we'll all have to be rolling perfect 20s consistently <laughs> forever. And it's we, we just know that isn't a thing, right? It's like you, you, the, the conditions are ripe for more of this kind of stuff, which all just really circles back to the system is entirely in, in, inviolable. Like this is this is one that cannot be sustained. The usual centrist crap of like, oh well, you know, it's it's not it's it's actually the best system we've got, and it's not that bad. Fuck that, completely and absolutely wrong. Um, it it is in the process of breaking itself apart and destroying itself, and it is absolutely imperative we organize against it. Right, and the, the other thing I think is bear that bears thinking about is like once people are vaccinated, and this is under control, we will have to deal with all of the trauma that comes out of this. So we can't expect people to just like bounce back immediately and it's like, okay, to the barricades. But we can organize in that phase and like make the trauma we've experienced a part, like processing that, make that a part of the organization but not in a way that's like just worsening our our trauma, right? Like the working through it and organizing has like been a sort of positive dimension of organizing forever. Uh, and we can hopefully uh, <laughs> we can hopefully do more of that as, as this pandemic ends and and create, yeah, these these kind of self-organizing units that share a common experience. That we can we can speak to, absolutely right. What a what a fucking year! It's uh, I'm very tired at the end of all this. Maybe who knows? It's not really the end of anything, but I am I am extremely tired. No, it, 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 it's this strange this strange experience where uh, we're at the end of the calendar year, but it doesn't 
feel like we're at the end of any kind of epoch or era. So there's a there's a distinction between calendar time and experience time that is very acute. Uh, and and it's it's very exhausting to be like, oh, it's the end of the year, but that doesn't actually mean anything. And we can't even do any events to mark the end of it. No, absolutely right. We're, we're, we're into linear linear time. We've, we've truly left the, uh, the era of cyclic time, and uh, it's, it's full hyperbolic acceleration from here. Um, yeah, I, I think like maybe, definitely next year, maybe this is, this is kind of addressing the listeners. Like, um, I, I think we're after, after our Kentucky Road Zero series um, in the first quarter of the year, we're, we're probably going to kind of go to more like a kind of monthly schedule, I guess, for a while, because I think we're, we're going to have to just focus on like recovering and and living i guess and and also these kind of like organizing efforts so i think we can probably expect a slower release schedule during next year um but we'll we'll still be trickling out the brain of the firm sessions um so there'll be no shortage of content it's just like jesus wow it's it's been a fucking hell of an experience this year um i'm looking forward to going out occasionally you know maybe maybe see a person that'd be nice you know yeah i i'm uh you know absolutely an introvert yeah. Uh, which has made me uh, perhaps better suited to this situation than others. But I'm still looking forward to going out and uh, either seeing people in small numbers or being alone in a social context, which is also an experience that I miss very much. Uh, even if, even if uh, I, uh, I do not crave a social contact to the same degree as many others. I think my introversion has kind of been burned away like an ablative layer, like it's kind of like space shuttle re-entering the atmosphere and all the shielding burns off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, I'm like, whew, that has just gone. I think I've like flipped over into the other mode entirely. Or I'm kind of actually, actually kind of desperate to like, just just get get some sort of like living done at some point. Um, I think a lot, a lot of folks are probably in the same, same kind of boat. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's going to be important for us to not kind of do the ah uh, to the barricade stuff um, in our organizing and 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 start a slow ramp up because I think we've we've now got this like practical experience and these like I think theoretical foundations that really do suggest that a slow boil is the way to get the job done and maybe not not like slow in the sense of like a glacial kind of reformist kind of thing but like a a slow and purposeful organizational effort that like really does lay the bricks on top of each other rather than like trying to jump to the top of the tower immediately yeah i think the very important thing to consider uh in comparing the situation to a wartime one where you know oftentimes at the end of a war you will see a lot of social upheaval and in, 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 in like a lot of organization and mass movement is that unlike during a war, we have not been organized on mass and had kind of these comradely experiences together that are produced by a military mobilization. Right. So like, let's not expect that we're going to have the same outcome when the pandemic ends, because we are not in the same organizational system, uh, situation that you would find at the end of wartime. Yeah, definitely. It's just right. not the same thing. We kind of need a different model. I mean, you know, blowing our own horn here, but we need, we need the model that we've been talking about uh, for like reconceptualizing what, what any of this stuff even means, right? That like organization is not mobilization. 
And like it, it turns out that a lot of our kind of cognitive models for this sort of stuff don't really carry over into the the kind of thing that we're realizing we need. And like I saw a thing on Twitter today that was like I think as we said in the interview today is um, the kind of anniversary of Labour's defeat in the previous election. Um, I saw something scroll past me that was basically like, oh yeah, this this is the anniversary. I, I kind of really don't mean to like pick on the person who was saying this or anything. It's just, it's just emblematic of a thing that's in the air, right? But like the the thing was like, oh. It's the anniversary. It's like one year since this defeat, and like we've kind of pissed away the year. Haven't really done much of anything. We've all been depressed as hell. Well, you know, next year we've really got to kick ourselves into gear and like sort our shit out. And I'm like, ah, oh, Jesus! Like, are, are do we are we even in the right framework of understanding the problem for that to make any sense as a statement? Or is it is it indicative perhaps that the fact that we've pissed away a year of this stuff indicative that we're in the wrong mentality entirely, and that like just thinking about remobilizing is it's just first like it, it probably won't work and also why would we expect it to work are are we not really facing the evidence that we need to do something else and and change our our model of even thinking about the basics of the problem let alone the basics of solutions yeah we need a serious assessment of what our capacities are right now what our organizational status is and nothing that I can read in that would suggest that uh, we're in a position for a general offensive. You know, it's like, well, like that might I like I, even at the individual level, I find the idea that like, oh, I wasted this year in COVID, so I need to make up for it the next year. I mean, maybe for some people that'll work out. But I think for most people, it's probably a pretty destructive way, self-destructive way to think about the upcoming year. It's going to be a speed run of activist burnout, right? Yeah, it's like, oh, no, wait, like, actually, that was really like, it's that kind of like denial relationship to trauma, right? It is like, well, like, oh, it didn't happen. It's insignificant. Like, I have so much freedom now. I'm just going to kick ass. Uh it's like, you know, when you come out of a bad breakup and you're like, I need yeah, to date yeah. all the people. Uh, and it's like. And you hit the gym and you're fucking full of energy. Yeah. <laughs> then you're eventually your mind is like, wait, actually, I only have so much bandwidth for social relationships. Uh, Absolutely. So right. maybe there will be an upheaval in that sense. But. I think a lot of it is going to be people actually like recovering more so than than like, you know, barging into the labor offices and like kicking out Starmer and being like, all right, this is the people's party now. We're just going to we're going to replace the slow march through the institutions with a speed run through the institutions, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah, yeah. That's that's going to well, work. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we've even seen like that. That doesn't really work. Like when they uh, during Occupy, I remember when they like stormed the Tory offices and just like wreck some shit. Uh, it's like, you know, that's fun. But like, uh, like. I mean, I'm not going to say don't do that because, like, I mean, there's a certain amount of just, like, visceral pleasure at, like, the <laughs> idea of, like, running through the Tory offices and smashing a bunch of computers. But, uh, uh, you know, it's like that that didn't actually destroy the Tory party by any means. I just I'm kind of kind of like now that I'm dwelling on this in my head, this like speed run concept, I mean, I think is quite applicable that, like. In, it's kind of like the, the the trick over and over again with the activist mindset is that there's going to be one weird trick. There's going to be one glitch, one kind of memory overrun that'll allow us to like teleport to the castle. 
You know, it's like you, you look at like a Zelda speedrun, and like you know the the, the 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 screen fades from black, and it's like the, the little character is facing this huge castle in the distance, and instead of making deliberative progress towards the goal, what the speedrunner does is turns around walks into a corner, jumps on top of a barrel and crouches while holding the jump button, and then they teleport to the castle. And I think that's kind of the model that we we all kind of carry in our heads and hope that would work. It's like, if we can just find the one weird trick, the one glitch that would teleport us into power, it would, we, would, we would not need to actually make the deliberative progress towards the goal. We could skip all of that shit, you know? The thing is that, um, you know, particularly in uh very simple video games you're dealing with stuff like uh memory address manipulation uh but as we've like learned from the bureau reading group that level of complexity is not at all analogous to our level of complexity that we grapple with because like at the level like the level that we're operating at in in social life we could spend our entire lives trying to map the memory uh, state of the operating system we're running on and would never be any closer to doing it, right? It, it's, it's simply impossible to have that level of granular understanding of the social reality, particularly given the fact that it is a dynamic system uh, yeah, so it's just way, 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 way more complex than what you're going to get on an 8-bit computer. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of like bizarro memory manipulation you see in like a Dragon Warrior uh, <laughs> speedrun where it's just like, you know, they're doing the, all this esoteric wizardry with the menus and then somehow end up at the end. Uh, it's just not... Like, don't even imagine it's possible because it's 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 physically not. That's just not what reality is like at this level of complexity. The only way to deal with social reality is to navigate it in real time um, and and organize within it. Yeah, which is is you know you could do a speed run at that level of complexity, but it involves something that is much more tactile and dynamic than it is understanding like a fundamental abstract variable that is going to unlock the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and unfortunately, we're, we're stuck in that reality. We are participants in it. Um, we just have, we have to crack on with, with doing it. Um, yeah, fun. What a, what a fun episode. Um, yeah, so uh, last we would be remiss not to say why do you are doing all this organizing coming out of the pandemic uh, is worth considering co-ops as an option (laughs) absolutely right we've we've, we've strayed Mm -hmm. a little bit from the original source material Mm -hmm. but i do want to bring it back to that (laughs) that you know uh co-ops are one option that are worth considering uh and using the methodology we've talked about with common knowledge uh i think is on many levels very useful like the thing you see in listening to them talk about Uh, organizing a co-op is that there is this whole uh, landscape of organizations that exist outside of the state facilities and supplement all of those things that would be available for a capitalist firm. So you like, we need to make use of that, like literally common knowledge and common organization in order to get one, uh, to get a co-op off the ground, right? Like, you know, make use of those resources, 
see if it makes sense for you. Um, and uh, yeah, don't do it all on your own. Don't do it all from scratch because uh, the system isn't set up for you to do that. So just, yeah, find find those resources out there wherever you may be, whether it's in the UK or otherwise. And uh, yeah, just uh, go from there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Indeed. Um, yeah, thanks, listeners. It's been wonderful as always. Um, thanks for sticking with us this year. It's been crazy. Um, and we'll hope you'll stick around for next year. We'll uh, After this episode, we'll be into the Kentucky Route Zero miniseries. So if you haven't caught the game yet, maybe give it a go also like enjoy it vicariously um if you if you don't think you'll ever get around to playing it i think you'll still get a lot from listening to us talk about it so don't worry too much about that and after that then we we have some stuff planned for big readings and some big chewy stuff that we've wanted to get around to for a while uh but as i said we'll probably be taking it a bit slower this year um and just figuring out how to how to live after a year indoors um but yeah, we really hope you stick around and hope you get organized in whatever context you're in. Um, you can catch us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. Uh, we're on Facebook. Um, we're on the net at generalintellectunit.net. You can find us on Patreon. Uh, if you go there, give us a couple of bucks a month. You can get into the community Discord where we're hanging out, talking with the folks all the time. And we've been doing those um, Brain of the Firm reading group um, sessions which are really nice. They'll be they'll be coming to an end pretty soon, but maybe later in the year uh, or next year we'll um, do something else. We'll probably do some Bogdanov. I think that's the one we've got we've got planned. Um, plus, it helps support us um, and keep our uh, keep keep us alive, <laughs> you know, uh, which is always appreciated. Um, yes. And you should definitely also check out Emancipation.network on the net. Uh, check out our sister shows over there, um, Swampside Chats, Jumpsuit Utopia, From Alpha to Omega, and Mortal Science. They are all excellent. Absolutely excellent. And yeah, wow. it's um, That's it for the year, I think. Um, I guess we'll, we'll see you around soon for some Kentucky. Yes. Uh, we will be heading to the, the great land of Mitch McConnell to... Uh, <laughs> to uh, experience the true dismal uh, landscape of, of late capitalism. And then then burrowing into a completely abstract hyperbolic space beneath that space. Um, yes. And, uh, and a weird river beneath that one. <laughs> what a fucking strange game. Um, absolutely bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but we're, we're looking forward to, um, to, to plumbing the depths of the zero. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, Maybe it's analogous to uh, our experience of COVID year because uh, time is very strange uh, in this year. And uh, also the calendar year doesn't really matter on the zero. So uh, that's kind of where we're all at. (laughs) Definitely, right? Time moves strangely on the Echo. Um, Yeah. And thanks again. We'll catch you again in a couple of weeks. We'll start up some Kentucky. It'll be great. Uh, Yeah. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.